0: Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. So we're in the worst pandemic in recent times, and certainly within my lifetime, a terrible tragedy of lost lives all around the world. And if we look at it also from a business perspective, even with government supports, it's hard to tell how many businesses will come out the other end and indeed what shape they'll be. So, uh, with that in mind, we wanted to think about how marketeers um, can use the best of behavioural science uh, to apply it to their business to really come out as strong as they possibly can on the other side. And I've got with me today—I would say the studio, but not the studio, because we're all locked in. But I've got with me Will Hamner Lloyd, who's head of behavioural planning at Behave, which is part of the Total Media Group, and the Richard Shotton, who's a best-selling author and behavioural scientists, and I'm your host, Pedro Martins. So welcome, gents. Morning, Pedro. Morning, Pedro. Um, so how are you both? Families?
1: Yeah, okay, adapting to life under lockdown. Um, I think we're starting to get to grips with it now, um, have a nice morning exercise routine that seems to be working for us, so it's, it's going okay.
2: Yeah, not too bad. Uh, I'm actually finding the, the fact that it's quite sunny, uh, relieving, I thought. I thought it might make it worse—that kind of FOMO, missing out. But at least it's a kind of mood boosting, just looking out the window.
0: One of the things that I wanted to talk about, which I've seen recently, and it, we can start in any order, but it was social proof. And th- the reason being is that when I, Boris was uh, before he caught COVID nineteen, he kept talking about people staying at home and remaining in their home. And um, the words he always used, you're all doing a great job. Lots of people are really listening. So he kept reinforcing that people were doing it, but could do it better. And I wanted to take, get your take on that.
2: Well, I think there's there's two interesting things about about social proof and how it's being u- used by the government. The first is that social proof, probably more than any other bias, has been shown to be effective in a huge range of different circumstances. So, you know, you've got a famous Cialdini experiment in terms of towel reuse, you've got the HMRC talking about tax repayment rates, uh, FANG and restaurant menus, situation, category, brand, different country. Again and again, we've shown that, uh, it's been shown that social proof is really important. What's interesting, though, is... Robert Cialdini argues that it becomes even more important when people are uncertain. You know, when people are uncertain, he says that they're much more willing to place an enormous amount of trust in the collected knowledge of the crowd. So I think you've got this case of generally social proof works, but it will be more important during the crisis because we're in a new situation in which people know they don't know. So what the crowd does, what other people do becomes more important. So, th- So that's one area. But the second danger that I think you're you're hinting at is the kind of dark side, the flip side of of, of social proof, and that's the idea that in the same way that social proof can be used to encourage positive behaviour, if people aren't careful, it can be used to encourage negative behaviour. It can backfire. You know, there's, a, there's a lovely children experiment done in a in a national park in Arizona, famous experiment, and what he did was work with that park to try and stop people stealing little bits of petrified wood. And in his test, he rigs up CCTV camera, um, puts this CCTV camera by a path and sprinkles bits of petrified wood along the path. So any tourist who walks down it is likely to be tempted. And he runs three different scenarios. Firstly, there's no sign and 3% of tourists nick a piece of wood then he puts up a sign which basically says don't steal it's wrong and theft rates drop by about half so i think it's 1.5 1.7% but then in that f- in the final version of his test he puts up a sign which was very similar to what the park rangers had been running which said don't st- uh, 14 tons of wood are being stolen each year and it's ruining the look of our park and in that scenario where he made theft seem commonplace it became much more common still. So theft rates went from 3% in the control to 7.9% in that new scenario. Now, what Cialdini argued was, if you make an antisocial behaviour feel like it regularly happens, you remove a sense of transgression, and it becomes more likely that it's going to happen. Now, he calls this the government's big mistake and when he's talking about the government's big mistake, he essentially means that a lot of governments inadvertently misapply social proof. So They make the situation they don't want to happen feel complacent, becomes more common still. And he talks about that happening, you know, with if you go out and say lots of people aren't going to their doctor's appointment, that will make the situation worse. Now, I think. There has been a danger in some of the communication, not necessarily the bit you mentioned about Boris, but maybe more with the newspapers. You know, when they put up big prominent pictures of empty shelves, that will encourage stockpiling, you know, makes people feel like everyone else is going out and doing it. When they go out with big stories about lots of people sunbathing or lots of people not following social distancing, All of Cialdini's work suggests that however well-meaning that is, that could make the the problem worse. So you've got this tricky balance of setting up a problem but not trying to make people feel like everyone else is out out doing it.
0: Will, I know you you in the past have talked about the impact of social proof. Back to uh, Richard's point in terms of that some people, there's negative social proof. There's also people who just won't do it, people who won't respond. Yeah,
1: I think so. There's interesting there... um two different areas that the people that don't respond. So Richard mentioned one area of research, I think, which was the behavioural insights team and people paying their tax on time. And that most people, when they heard a social proof message about people paying their tax on time, uh, it increased the likelihood of um, people paying themselves. But actually that sort of normative message uh, decreased collections amongst those with the largest tax bills. Um, potentially because they felt themselves to out- operate outside the norms of most people, because they obviously had the largest um, and most differentiating incomes. Um, and with them, when the message was changed to how what they provide is vital for public services and the public at large, it actually improved them paying their taxes. So I think we need to know the power of social proof, but that it isn't necessarily an effective message for every single group. And there may be people who are more likely to respond to different messages because they feel they are separate or outside of the norm. So how, how do you feel, I mean, we sort of addressed it already, but
0: how do you feel that the government has done it right or could do it better? And also, I guess my other part of the question is, is there a way for businesses and brands to be thinking about how this can apply? Obviously, you've got to be careful. I mean, at the moment, you don't want to be pushing or selling
2: Actually, you want to be supporting people, but is there a way that brands could be doing this better? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that the for a lot of brands, they won't want to be stimulating immediate demand. You know, either if you're a car company, you know, no one's going to visit your showrooms, so you're not going to buy anything. There's just there's no point in, in stimulating that short-term demand. Or maybe if you're a supermarket, you are, uh, you know you're overflowing with demand so again it doesn't want to be stimulated so, so you, there's definitely a change role for advertising in terms of its short-term effect but alongside that there are some reasons why brands might want to be considering spending now and a lot of this comes down to research into how a change in someone's environment uh, can lead to a disruption of uh, habits So if you go back to 2017, last time I ran uh, an experiment on this topic, we surveyed 2,370-odd people and asked them two very simple questions. First one was, in the last 12 months, have you undergone any of these life events? Tick the ones that apply, married, divorced, retired, moved house, that kind of stuff. Then there were a few filler questions to put them off the scent. And then the final question was, and have you tried a new brand in any of these categories? Tick the ones that apply. Lager, makeup, coffee shop, so on and so forth. And the key finding was that if people hadn't undergone a life event, about 8% of people in an individual category had tried a new brand. But if they had undergone a life event in the last year or so, uh, that proportion jumped to about 21%. So it's about a two and a half fold increase. Now, what seems to be happening here is that a disruption to someone's environment affects their purchasing behaviour, even in unrelated categories. And there are a couple of different theories about why this might be. Um, there is an argument from Catherine Milkman. Now, she says a lot of habitual behaviour occurs because we want to be consistent with our past self when we undergo one of these big changes, Are perceived linkage with our past self is weakened and therefore we're more open to change or there's another argument which is simply you know one of the reasons we have habitual behavior is in a static constant environment it's a very effective way of getting to a a decent decision when your environment changes that those habits are no longer so useful and therefore people uh, look to, to other things to satisfy their needs now in a way which hypothesis is right doesn't really matter but what's of interest is commercial behaviour becomes destabilised when some environment changes. Now, that's important now. As as a society, all of us, not just the 5 or 10% who've undergone a life end, but all of us, all of us have just undergone a massive uh, environmental change going into lockdown. And what's perhaps most interesting to brands is we're going to go through another massive environmental change in, well, six, ten, eight weeks, whatever it is, whenever this lockdown ends. And what we'd expect to happen is in the same way that a life event destabilizes our habitual behavior, so will the end of the lockdown. So brands need to be very careful because if habits are weakened, there is a danger to them in that many of their customers might stop buying them by someone else. But of course, there's a flip side, which is the opportunity. Many of their competitors' customers' habits might be weakened and there's an opportunity to win them over. So there's an argument that this is not the time to be stopping your long-term advertising. It might not be very effective to advertise now to stimulate immediate demand. But of course, the role of advertising isn't just in the short term. There is a strong rationale to keep on advertising so that you benefit rather than lose out from this habit destabilization
0: and it's and it's not just advertising right i mean if you look at a lot of the the good stuff that's happening out there so for example uh, one of the brands we work with the Longe, sent um various hosp- hospitals and nhs staff coffee machines so they can still get their fresh cup of coffee every day so it's about building sort of brand equity and doing the right thing f- for everybody
2: Uh, well i agree with you it doesn't just have to be advertising i think with with the great thing with behavioral science is the insights are not limited to what you put in a 30 second ad or a a half page magazine ad it can be everything from your pr your in-store um your pricing to your advertising so yes absolutely it's it's marketing in the broadest term that we should be thinking about
0: great and will have you got anything to add to that um i think
1: it, it makes a lot of sense obviously there is a a huge body of evidence around the fact that life events can create new habits. And you can see COVID-19 creating a lot of the psychological uncertainty that can uh, reduce people's instinctive behaviors. But also just, you can think that a lot of our buying behavior that has been habitual will be disrupted. So a lot of what was bought in stores, people will set up new online habits that will be created. And Um, I think 90% of Gen Z said they've made changes to their daily routine as a result of COVID-19. So there's definitely uh, a real opportunity and threat here that um, brands who have had very loyal customers historically may find that um, they try new products and new brands for the first time. In terms of uh, trying to appeal to people to either keep them loyal or to attract new customers I think broadly there's two core approaches one is salience um, so trying to make sure that you are front of my mind for this increased number of consumers who will be trying new brands and developing new buying habits uh, and that is just about having a message that you push out as broadly and frequently as possible the second is as you mentioned trying to show empathy um, And I think with uh, GWI saying that over 90% of consumers feel concerned about the impact of COVID-19, uh, there is a real desire for people to see brands be helpful, uh, empathetic uh, to them and to frontline workers. Uh, and as you say, that can be either through their messaging or through very positive things. I think it was interesting, for instance, that, Supermarkets opening early for key staff. I think was started by a supermarket. I believe it was Iceland first, um, and so actually some of the the key changes that are being made are being driven by brands.
2: I was going to say. I think the 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 flip side of that is that brands need to be very so. Will and your uh, DeLonghi example are brilliant examples of brands trying to be helpful, and I think there is an element of both that's the right thing to do and enlighten self-interest that, um, consumers will be thankful and grateful for that. The flip side is I also think consumers will often punish brands who act unfairly. So there's a, there's a lovely set of experiments back from 1982 by a, a German psychologist called Werner Goof. And he came up with this idea called the ultimatum game. And it's a really simple setup. He splits. Uh, a pair of people. So these are strangers. They'll never meet, never have met, uh, puts them in separate rooms and he calls one the proposer and one the receiver. He gives the proposer a set amount of money. So let's say a tenner and he says to that proposer, you get to split this cash with the other guy. Uh, and it's up to you how you divide it. So let's say the proposer decides to keep eight for themselves and give the receiver two quid. The receiver then has, uh, two options. They can either accept what they've been offered you know, and and the split as it stands, so £8, £2, or they can refuse the split and both parties get nothing. Now, before Guth did these experiments, the assumption amongst economists would was that the receiver would take pretty much any offer, £1, £2, 10%, 20%, whatever it was, because they would be in a worse financial position if they turned that money down. But what Guth showed again and again was that in Western countries, when it was a reasonably small sum of money, if the offer got less than about 30%, most consumers, most participants would turn down an unfair split. And Guth argued that uh, this is because we are hardwired to punish, even if there's a cost to ourselves, unfairness. And because he argued, look... This is an evolutionary uh, development that as a species, humans are weak as individuals, but very powerful in groups. And the only way you can get a group working is if you punish people who are behaving unfairly, like freeloaders. So you've got this whole body of work that suggests people are prepared to go to quite big lengths, even at a cost of themselves, to punish someone if they feel um, they have behaved unfairly. Now, that, at first, doesn't sound like it's relevant to the commercial world. But there have been a series of experiments done by Kahneman and Thaler, which have shown that consumers think price rises at times of emergency by brands, you know, small price rises, are judged to be deeply unfair. And I was interested in how that played out during the, the COVID crisis. So did a quick bit of research. And told consumers about a situation in which a, a supermarket had risen, had increased prices on toilet paper from £5 to £6 and got them to say where they thought it was from completely fair, quite fair, quite unfair or completely unfair. And 72% of people think that that tiny little price rise is completely unfair. So the warning for for brands would be it's not just that you should think about communications and uh, activities that are helpful and useful, but also avoid exploiting this situation. Avoid maximizing your profits in the short term uh, because of increased demand, because it will be judged to be deeply unfair. And there is a risk, not a certain one, but there's certainly a a risk that you might generate long-term negativity.
1: I think just to add to that, one area that's interesting for brands to consider Mm. is there are brands that can put up prices because demand has gone up. There will also be brands that need to put up prices because supply-side costs have grown. So examples will be paracetamol, where there's a real shortage of um, uh, the ingredients for it being made. Um, And I think one of the things brands will need to do is if they do have to increase prices because of supply-side issues, uh, really try to communicate that to their buyers so that people don't think it's an unfair uh, price hike that they want to punish, but understand the reasoning and therefore more likely to to not feel that this situation is being exploited.
2: Absolutely right there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lovely paperback in 1986 when Kahneman talked about his, um, some examples of what people thought was fair and not fair. And in one of those examples, he gives people a thought experiment about, I think it's lettuce. And he says that there's been a local shortage of lettuce for some kind of transportation issue. And the wholesale cost of lettuce has gone up by 50 pence ahead of lettuce. And a local greengrocer puts up his prices by that amount. When he gives that backstory, the proportion of people who think the price rise is unfair plummets. Now, there's still some people, but you know, it's 20 or 30% rather than uh, 70%. So I think you're absolutely right. If you have to put up prices, explaining that you are passing on costs is judged to be completely different from being seen to increase your profits at this at this at time of need. So there are, as Will says, there are tactics of brands to use uh, if, if that is the case.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the Behavioural Planning Agency, an innovative approach to behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.